All right. She said she wants sushi. Well, that sounds good. But that's going to be like a million billion dollars. Yes, it is. And it's not on DoorDash, which is why I didn't get it because I have the DoorDash subscription that I pay for. So I don't pay delivery fees and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, <clears throat> this restaurant that she specifically wants sushi from is not on DoorDash. It's on Postmates. And I said, oh, well, I'll just get a different sushi restaurant on DoorDash. And she said, no, never mind. I'll just pick up Wendy's. I'm like, fine, I will order the goddamn sushi on Postmates. There's going to be a true crime story coming out of this house later. That's what it sounds like. (laughs) Okay. Jesus. Welcome to Hysterical History, where we sit down, talk about our favorite stories, and of course, laugh. Your hosts are Whitley Trussler and Emily Gummery. All right, let's get this show started. So today I was in a work meeting and I have a coworker uh, named Toby who lives in Austria and he's Austrian. And he asked, you know, oh, did you all change your clocks last night? And we were like, no, our clock changing is in November, November 7th. Um, So he was saying how this week his usual schedule is only five hours ahead of us instead of six hours ahead. So it's nicer for his schedule but then like on november 7th it's gonna go back to him having a six hour time difference and he's like yeah it kind of sucks but i'm gonna enjoy it this week so i was like wait a minute i I don't think about how everybody has a different practice of daylight saving time and i felt i feel like i thought we were the only ones that did daylight savings time no so europe still does it they're in the process of trying to get rid of it in the European Union, actually only one quarter of the world's population, so about 70 countries, observe daylight saving. And it's typically not as common when you get closer to the equator because their daylight hours don't really change much because of their closeness to the equator. Um, So yeah, not really a lot of the world practices it. Of course, the USA does, because why wouldn't we? Um, practice something that doesn't actually make sense anymore so yeah I was like wait a minute I thought if you practiced it you'd at least be on the same cadence as other countries but no they do theirs in October and we fall back in November do we know why did he say why no um so it's just really different decisions on how this happened so I'm going to go into the history of the development of daylight saving time Um, which I actually didn't realize this, but it is not daylight savings time. It's singular. It's daylight saving time because you're saving daylight, which is interesting. So Mm. I'm probably going to mess it up throughout this episode because I'm just used to saying savings. Um, I'm going to try my best, though, to not sound like a stupid American. Well, I mean, we should have stopped this podcast then if we didn't want to sound like stupid Americans. That's true. We really should have never started it, and we definitely should quit telling stories about Germans (laughs) or just anybody that's not in the United States but here we are that's that's fair but I'm gonna keep doing it anyways um me too so rate us on Apple podcast so we can continue to do it one star for bad pronunciation no please rate us because (laughs) we need the algorithm to like us so we can get more people 
Yeah, what she said. That's my shameless plug. (laughs) So I guess I'll start off with our our favorite founding father that we like to talk about, Benjamin Franklin. Ooh, Benny Boy, back again. Yeah, Benny Boy, ooh. Making another cameo here in the podcast. So in 1784, he was actually credited with the idea of moving the clocks forward, which is actually wrong. He didn't actually come up with this idea. Um, But just because of the way he framed it, a lot of people attribute it to him. So he was in Paris and he wrote a satirical essay about how much Parisians could save money if they just woke up at dawn. And uh, apparently he, he stated that they could save. Yeah. They could, they could save the equivalent of $200 million of today's dollars in energy by using the quote unquote economy of sunshine instead of candles. So what energy? Oh, he's just talking about like candle buying. Yeah, so I guess energy in that day would be like the cost of purchasing all those candles because it would take like thousands of candles a day (laughs) to light some homes, you know, like the big. I'm cracking up, like comparing it to like what we think of as energy and like saying energy is the equivalent to like candles then like just is cracking me up. I can't. It is is kind of hilarious. (laughs) I mean, in 1784, there's not, like, anything powered by coal or water or... It's just candles. Well, at first, I thought you meant their energy. And I was like, how does that work? And then I realized you meant freaking candles. Yes. (laughs) So, Benny Boy was given the honor of inventing daylight saving time. But he really only proposed the change in sleep schedules. So, not actually changing the clocks. So, he was saying, oh, you Parisians, if you got up at dawn like we all should, then you would save so much more energy, but y'all are up here staying out late, blah, 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 blah. So. Says the man who went there and also partied, but. Correct. Yes. Well, it was funny. I was reading the article and and there was like a quotation or like parentheses. And it was like someone who lived by like early riser and go to bed early, but like definitely never did that. (laughs) Because apparently it's something. Look that up. That's him. Yeah, apparently it's something he, like, avidly preached but did not practice, which is pretty on brand for Benny Boy, I think. So then we go forward from 1784, where Ben Franklin is credited with the idea of daylight saving time, to 1895. So we're jumping almost a century, actually over a century ahead. Oh my gosh, I'm dizzy. (laughs) I know, we're time traveling here today. Um, So an entomologist named George Vernon Hudson proposed an annual two-hour time shift in New Zealand and unsuccessfully proposed, I should say. It it didn't work out for him. But the reason he wanted it was so that after he was done with his workday, he could go and catch some more bugs for his study and have daylight left at the end of his workday. Um, I'm sorry, did you say this was Whitley that did this? uh, No, it was entomologist George Vernon Hudson. Um, I I could see why you get get confused. Yeah, Yeah. I, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have done my fair share of catching and pinning bugs. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So then we go forward a decade from 1895 to 1905 when we really get the first campaign to push for daylight saving time uh, for a real reason, not just so some guy can go catch more bugs in the evening. So this happens in the United Kingdom 
uh, a man named William Willett has this campaign to implement the daylight saving time. So he was on an early morning horseback ride around the outskirts of London, and he had a grand epiphany that the United Kingdom should move their clocks forward by 80 minutes, which is weird that he wasn't like an hour. He chose an hour and 20 minutes. I don't know. But that was his proposal. Um, And that we would get that extra sunlight during the day between April and October so more people could be outside and enjoy sunlight, which which makes sense. So in 1907, he actually like created this whole brochure and published it. Uh, and it was called The Waste of Daylight. So he spent a lot of his personal fortune on this mission to get people to adopt quote unquote summertime. So like summertime and wintertime didn't really like exist before this. Like it wasn't, we had seasons, sure, but this really, this idea of changing the time created summer time winter time because now those times are different when you think about it does so that how did they designate like because we're like oh it's you know it's, it's getting to that you know winter and like did they say stuff like that or like they just didn't designate it and they're just like oh you know November yeah I, I, they still had seasons but the like official mm-hmm. like if you say summertime mm-hmm like there's there's an oh are you I guess like, like the, the designation on the cat like where it says like summer starts here and summer ends here is like is that what you're talking about no maybe oh. we'll just move on it's it's a little bit confusing okay. let's, um let's you can say I'm an idiot that's fine no it's it is confusing <laughs> confusing it's confusing confusion it's confusion um but the British Parliament said William we're not doing this. And he kept pushing for it Same. for years. <laughs> and he died in 1915 at the age of 58 before he ever saw his idea come to fruition. That's kind of sad. Yeah, poor that's William. Really young. Yeah, it is. Honestly, if he would, literally would have lived one year longer, he would have seen daylight saving Stop time. It. Oh my God, that's even sadder. <laughs> I know. Um, but before I get to that, um, in 1908, for some reason, these two small towns in Canada, Port Arthur and Fort William, which are today known as Thunder Bay, very weird transition from those names to Thunder Bay. Oh, but, okay. So they like combined them. Yeah. They're now okay. like one place today. They decided to spring ahead on May 1st. So they decided to adopt daylight saving time and get that extra you know, time in the evening to have sunlight. So two places by themselves. Well, they on their own volition. Yeah. Okay. So I'll tell you the quick, (laughs) this guy named (laughs) John. Yeah, I know this guy named John Hewittson wanted an extra hour of summer sun during the day. So he petitioned the councils of both of the towns. So both Port Arthur and Fort William, which observed central time, he convinced them to adjust the clocks to Eastern time in the summer months and switch back in the fall. So both towns were like, oh, okay, we'll do that for you, John. And on May 1st, 1908, they sprung ahead for the first time. And this was a decade before the Canadian government officially adopted daylight saving. Wow. So they did it for a decade. And then people were like, mm, this sounds like they're onto something. Yeah. The rest of Canada was like not doing that. Is this these two towns 
that's a wow that's crazy isn't it it's weird that they just decided oh we're just gonna switch time zones during the year a couple times why not and just for one guy yeah i'm sure the whole town he must have have like gotten the support of his citizens i would assume he emailed around a petition on yeah yeah. what what is that like change.org or what i was gonna say change.org i couldn't think of it so remember i said william willett who was in 1905 the first person to really campaign for daylight saving he died in 1915 so now 1916 we're in World War Two or World War One. Wow, not World War Two. Um, oh my gosh, is this a history podcast? <laughs> no, it's just two dumb Americans. <laughs> so, <laughs> in April 1916, Germany and Austria become the first countries to enact daylight saving time. And the reason they did this was because they wanted to conserve electricity so by getting that extra hour during the summer of sunlight they had more natural light and they could conserve energy for the war effort so this time we're not talking about like candles as energy (laughs) we're talking about like actual energy that makes sense yes yeah and i get it that makes sense why they would do that right and just a few weeks later the united kingdom followed suit and they also introduced daylight saving So the idea of like, we have a different time in summer versus winter. So poor William missed it by a year. (laughs) Well, I guess he just didn't need to see it, I suppose. I guess so. And then in 1918, which is, we're sort of hitting the end of World War I, but the USA also starts to adopt daylight saving at this time. Um, So they had it for about a year during the last year of the war, give or take. So here, though, I wanted to add, I think there's often, and this I've heard this too, there's a myth that daylight saving is for the benefit of farmers, and that's the reason we have it. But that's actually not true at all. That's exactly what I've heard word for word. Yes. Well, actually, the agriculture industry was deeply opposed to daylight saving because yeah the time switch which was first implemented on march 31st in 1918 and it disrupted their schedules for going out planting and harvesting and it also affected the times that their farm hands would be ready um to work and they had to wait now an extra hour for the dew to go away to start harvesting hay so it actually really disrupted agriculture so I don't know where this myth comes from, that this is for the benefit of farmers to have more daytime, because it actually really screwed up the work of farmers and the agriculture industry overall. So if there's like, essentially you spring forward, fall back, mm-hmm. doesn't most, and I'm not an idiot. I know that depending on what you're growing depends on the type of like time of year that you're your farming and stuff, but doesn't most agriculture like happen in the summer? It does, but the, so the then issue... wouldn't they not? They wouldn't be fighting dew then because they're springing forward an hour, which means they have, they have more. Right, they're they don't have to fight the dew. Or am I wrong? Am I well? The thing about is wrong? because 
say we spring forward, you're getting an extra hour in the evening, but a lot of farmers work in the morning. So now they're losing that time that they would be working in the morning before it heats up and um, okay. now they're de- I- like, they used to start like when the sun would rise, but now the sun rises, you know, instead of it rising at 6 a.m., it's rising at like 7 a.m. So it's completely like shifting their schedule an hour. Okay. Does that make more sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. But this only lasts a year. The U.S. only has daylight saving for a year because the farmers had this national campaign to repeal it in 1919. So Congress passed it. They overrode President Woodrow Wilson to pass it. Because really, the people who benefited from daylight saving was urban entities. So restaurants, businesses, commerce, because people are out now in the evening for an extra hour. So they really benefited from getting that extra hour of sunlight for consumers in the evening. I'm sure and, they did. Yeah. And, and real retail and recreational businesses are the people who still continue to champion daylight saving and think it's important because they have, I mean, it actually does affect their profits and how much money they make. It's interesting though, that like we're fed this narrative that it's agriculture. Right. And Cause it's instead of like legitimately the like retail and like, that's interesting to me. It is. And it'd be interesting to kind of do a more research into how that myth came about because it's actually the exact opposite but after 1919 when congress says okay we're not going to do a national daylight saving time the u.s just becomes a hot mess of local practices of daylight saving so kind of how that little those little canadian towns were practicing this a decade before all of canada was Now you've got some states and cities like New York City, Chicago, Boston, they're continuing it. But then there are other places in the country, especially rural areas, because they didn't like it, who are just being on standard time all year. They're not changing clocks. So now it's just this absolute mess. And (laughs) I'll get to it in a minute, but um, it's crazy how many time zones you had to pass through sometimes in states because they all had different daylight saving rules. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure you literally had, you probably had no idea what time it was. Exactly. And I'm sure that messed up not only just business in general, but like trains and like public transportation. Like I'm, I'm sure that was a hot mess. Yes. Everything was just terrible. So in 1942, again, Another global catastrophe is what pushes us to reinstate daylight saving again here in the U.S. and also in European nations as well who are involved in the war. So, again, it's for the same reasons as the First World War. It's just energy savings. But again, in the U.S., we observed it from 1942 to 45, and then it was repealed three weeks after the end of World War II. So then we go back to this patchwork of local and state-specific daylight saving rules, except this time more states decided to continue the practice. 
So there's just no consistency for decades, literal decades. We just deal with this chaos, which... So here's an example of how chaotic it was. In 1965, in Iowa alone, there were 23 different pairs of start and end times for daylight saving. And Wait, how many? 23. Okay, that's what I thought you said, but I just wanted to check. Yep. And then another example, St. Paul, Minnesota, which has its twin city of Minneapolis, like right next to it. St. Paul, Minnesota began their daylight saving two weeks before their twin city, Minneapolis, did. Not twins anymore. Nope. They decided, we're not identical, we're fraternal, we need to be different. And then one last example I found, passengers on a 35-mile 35 35-mile 35 bus ride from Steubenville, Ohio to Moundsville, West Virginia. Holla! Pass- That's yeah. my area. Woo. Well, to get there on a, again, a 35 mile bus ride, they passed through seven different time changes. <laughs> seven. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> so it's just, it's a mess, which is very American of us to be a hot mess. So in 1966, the US government decides it's time to fix this after letting it run like that from. 1945 to 1966 they're like okay 20 years too much of this nonsense this is the time yeah okay (laughs) so they passed what's called the uniform time act which standardized daylight saving time across the country and it also established official start times in april and october which was later over the years changed to march and november which is what it is currently um that actually happened in 2007. We got on our current schedule of... Do we know why it changed? I do not, know. I didn't go that deep into how often it changed. Oh, okay. But, of course, because why not? There's a loophole in the Uniform Time Act that says, okay, well, states, states don't have to do it if they don't want to. So... Arizona and Hawaii today are the two states that don't actively observe daylight saving time. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. I thought everyone did. Nope. There are two states now, and Indiana also for a brief period didn't observe it, um, but they do now. So how does, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for, like, I keep interrupting you, but how does that affect, like, especially Arizona for being in the continental U.S., like, how does that Mm -hmm. affect everything else because they're like they're the one whole state in the continental u.s that doesn't observe it okay yes this i was super confused by this because i was like wait a minute are they just operating in a different like are they in the future are they in the past like what is happening (laughs) i was so confused so the history of arizona because i had to really dig into it because i was like okay i have to know how this works in arizona so they did end up trying it in 1967 after the um, Uniform Time Act passed. But everybody was just angry about it because Arizona doesn't need more sun because it just gets a lot of sun. That's so fair. people were like, well, wait, we want our evenings in the summer to be cool. Otherwise, we're just suffering in this horrible heat. So they were like, no, 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 we're not doing this. So they decided that okay well after a year this crap no we're not doing this so they revoke it 
except for the Navajo Nation on the eastern side of Arizona. They actually still observe daylight saving time, but it's because their territory, the Navajo territory, extends into Utah and Mexico, which are both states that observe daylight savings time. Oh, saving. so for the whole, like, the, the whole nation for the Navajos, like, to be on the same time, they need to. Yes, because there okay. is... Because they're also in two other states in addition to Arizona, they decided they would just conform to the practice in Utah and New Mexico, which which makes sense. So then how does that affect them? <laughs> like that's that's like a like what's that thing? Inception or whatever. Yeah, it's very confusing and I'm still not sure that I understand what's going on. So here's an example. I had to just pull examples to make sense of this. So Arizona is on mountain standard time when the rest of the country goes on daylight saving time in the spring arizona is then three hours behind east coast and two hours behind chicago but when daylight saving time ends in november they're only two hours behind the east coast so they don't change their clocks they become pacific time they don't they don't change their time but like in our brains we have to work it like that because they don't change their clock Essentially, everybody else has to adjust to what time it is in Arizona. So the problem with this is that business owners, for example, in Arizona, they'll get in arguments if they do interstate commerce because their hours of operation don't change with everybody else's. So it gets really confusing for people in Arizona. And I was reading that it can be confusing for sports fans as well, like knowing when. So if the Cardinals are playing, they have to figure out how to like adjust and calculate their time in relation to everybody else because they don't change their time okay so essentially we would treat them as if we're doing business internationally like be observant of their time yes and stuff like that yeah wow it's very confusing yeah hawaii is not as big of a deal because it kind of feels like they're their own entity anyways because they're so far off of what I mean they have their own time zone it's like the Hawaiian time or whatever um what well, do they, you know why they chose I mean we know Arizona they don't need it like that much sun or whatever they said but like why did Hawaii choose not to it's a similar reason. reason because of where they're located on the globe they don't need extra time in the evening so it's pretty consistent like season to season how long their daylight is because of their location on the globe so they just never after 1966 when they passed the uniform time act in the u.s hawaii just decided never to adopt it so they just after world war ii they just said we're not doing this unlike arizona who was like we'll try it but then we're like "Mm, no not for me so that was very confusing and it's very hard to wrap your head around that Arizona is just sitting over there not changing their time while everybody else in the U.S. is. It's very Arizona is just living our dreams for us. Kind of, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of arguments for getting rid of daylight saving time in the U.S. because, and I'll get into this in a second, the actual pros and cons of it, how it was always for energy savings is not actually true anymore because of modern day technologies, we actually use more energy. You don't use a, a candle at night? No, I used to, but the candle cost was just too much. Mm, damn energy companies. 
Um, so I'm just going to hop back to Europe really quick just because I thought it was, this is interesting to tie in how world events have shaped daylight saving time. So in 1973, we had the energy crisis and it leads to this daylight saving rebirth in Europe. So similar to the U.S., like after World War II, it wasn't really, they didn't really use it, but there was an oil embargo in October 1973 imposed by the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries. And essentially what this did was cause energy prices to skyrocket worldwide, really. Okay. And it caused a recession across the continent. So the situation called for drastic measures. So again, for energy purposes, France was the first to revive daylight saving in 1976, because of the energy crisis and the recession it caused, they decided they needed extra daylight to help preserve some of those energy resources, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So by the end of the 1970s, most of Europe was again observing daylight saving time because of this 1970s energy crisis. Again, for some reason, it always takes 20 years to standardize these weird time practices. So again, like everybody's just disjointed in Europe. The European Union decides, oh, we're going to standardize this schedule. So it's still in force today. But they are pushing to get rid of it presently. So by they, do you mean like Europe in general or is there like a specific they? So the European Union, which encompasses several countries in Europe okay so they're they're currently working in how they're going to get rid of daylight saving um but that's still in progress now are you getting into why we can't just be like okay now we're not doing it anymore and then we just stop no not really um because it seems like they just said okay we're doing this and then we started it so I don't understand why it has to be such a big deal to stop it Right. And because of how much it fluctuates, I agree with you there, how many times we have started and stopped it in response to world events. I I don't know if people are just looking for consistency, which I understand. It's like, can we just like decide whether we're doing this or not? This is just always going to be a mess unless we say we're getting rid of it or we're not. Yeah. I, I really don't understand how it makes sense for one country to say I'm doing it and then the other one to say I'm not. Because you're always going to be fighting. Like, we already fight over, like, okay, this business is open at this time. Or, oh, I have to get up at 5 a.m. to talk to Tokyo or whatever. Like, we're already doing that. And I feel like if one country is different than another, it's just going to make it even worse. Well, let me add another layer, which we don't have to discuss deep, of complexity, is that there are 24 different time zones in the United States. So, like, if you lay the United on, States? Or, I'm sorry, I'm I sorry. I thought there were four. Sorry, sorry. 24 different time zones in the world. Sorry, not United States. Oh, that so I the, knew. I was like, yeah. wait. <laughs> sorry. So, if you think about it, you're going to have to layer on top of that time zone considerations and daylight saving time considerations. No one will ever know what time it is. No. Which, I mean, time is just a construct anyway. We made it up, but still. I guess that's why this is such a debated topic, because how do we get everybody on the same schedule when some people want an extra hour during the day and some people hate it, which is like everything. 
now that we've made it through that very confusing history of daylight saving, you can sit back and not relax as Emily tells you the story of the evolution of a hospital in London. Are you ready for a wild journey? I'm always ready for a wild journey on a Monday evening. All right. Well, um, today I'm going to tell you the story about the Bethlehem Royal Hospital, a.k.a. St. Mary Bethlehem, a.k.a. Bethlehem Hospital, a.k.a. Bedlam. Have you ever heard of Bedlam? I have heard of Bedlam and not for a good reason, I don't think. When that you said correct. Bedlam, I have a very negative connotation in my mind. I'm that is not correct. sure why, but. Well, I'm going to tell you why. So <clears throat> let's start at the beginning. So first of all, the reason that you have a like a negative, well, this is not the reason why, but we're going to get to the reason why. Um, the reason you know it is because it's a psychiatric hospital in London. Okay, but we're going to start at the beginning and work our way to how they became a psychiatric hospital and why you have a negative connotation with the word Bedlam. It was founded in 1247. We're going way back. Originally, it was founded as the Priory of the New Order of Our Lady of Bethlehem. It was not initially intended as a hospital or even a, a specialist institution for the insane, but actually as a center to support the Crusader Church and to link England to the Holy Land. It then transitioned to a medieval hospital because it became an institution by charity or taxes for the care of the needy. And in the 14th century, there was a lot of unease in London. And in the 1370s, King Edward III took control. This was mainly like they want to say, you know, unease in London. Really, the king took control of this because it was a way to ensure that all the revenue made at the hospital went to England during the 100 years war. That, that checks out. Yeah. So like, we just need, you know, we need a revenue source. Let's take the people at this hospital. Um, so in 1546, a petition was put forth to the crown to grant Bethlehem to the city. Henry VIII ceded uh, with, quote, the custody order and governance of the hospital and its occupants and revenues. It was unknown when it began to specialize in the care and control of the insane, um, but the first definite record is in details of a visitation of the charity commissioners in 1403. Question. Yeah. You said Henry VIII. He's yeah. the one that had like one million wives, right? Is, mm -hmm. is it that Henry? Oh, fun. Look at him. Yeah, that Henry. I'd love to cover that Henry at some point. We could probably do a podcast on just the monarchy. Oh my God. I would love that. Sign me up starting <laughs> tomorrow. We need this one to pop off first. So people really need to leave us some reviews. Yes, please. Second plug <clears throat> for reviews. Yeah. So around this time is when people started referring to the hospital as Bedlam. Bedlam was an informal name, but um, then entered everyday speech as a way to signify a state of madness, chaos, and the irrational nature of the world. 
it's important to note, and I want to stress that there was not a lot of medical care going on right now. Everyone referred to the inmates as the poor or prisoners, and they weren't actually designated as patients or the word patients was not used until 1630. So Wait. before that, they were referred to as prisoners, um, inmates, and the poor. So that's very interesting that you say that because in my hometown, there's the park is Infirmary Mound Park. That's the main park, but it actually used to be kind of what you're describing right now, but it was really? a household for what they called poppers, P-A-U-P-E-R-S, but yep. like turned in to an insane asylum. So I'm just interested in that socioeconomic status overlay between being insane and being poor. It's very interesting dynamics there. Yes. I also think it's just mainly because like they did not really understand. Well, one thing didn't understand socioeconomic status the correct way and like how people are poor, why they're poor and why they continue to be poor, but also um, mental health and how conditions that you grow up in vastly contribute to your mental health. And so a lot of these people, like, I think I put it in here at some point, but like a lot of people were just in like a poor house, like maybe they couldn't afford their house payment anymore. And so they had to go to the poor house. Like think about it, you lost your house. You're at a workhouse now with terrible conditions and you might go crazy or you might do something that people just assume is crazy. And then you end up in a place like freaking this. I mean, yeah, so. it probably really pushes you to the brink of your mental sanity being in those conditions. Mm-hmm. And I and you like people yelling at you all the time. Yeah, no. So that that makes a lot of sense. I just wanted to make that note because it is very interesting how it plays out like that. Yes. So let's go over some conditions at this time, like in the um, 1600s, because I really want you to think about this when we move forward in our timeline. So to get a good sense, um, like literally straight off the bat from the beginning, a visit by the governors in 1607 resulted in the ordering of clothing and eating vessels because presumably that indicated that they did not even have basic items to use while they were living there. Like it took a group of governors going there to get these things ordered. Okay, like I would lose my sanity as well. Yes. So then in 1631, there was an inspection done and they made a note that patients were, quote, likely to starve, end quote, due to embezzlement issues with the acting, quote, keeper physician. So the keeper physician is kind of like we would associate with like a head doctor or, um, like, <clears throat> what's the word I'm looking for? I'm just going to say runner of the hospital because I, I know. Like what a medical director? Huh? Like a medical director? Yeah, kind of. Like, that's what a, a keeper physician was, what I would equate it to. So that person was embezzling. And so because of that, they couldn't afford food and they were likely to starve. So during this inspection, it also came out 
um, that charitable goods and hospital purchased foodstuffs intended for patients had been um, misappropriated by the hospital steward and either, and that was for either his own use or to be sold back to the inmates because, you know, they're poor and they have all kinds of money. If Whitley, you and I would have starved because if the patients lacked resources to trade, they often went hungry. In the 16th century, um, the building was pretty open. Uh, aside from those who were locked up for being, quote, too dangerous, the patients were given the ability to roam around the confines of the hospital so they could actually like go outside as they wanted. Um, obviously, they could only go so far because people were scared um, of having insane people like nearby because this was like in London originally. So, um, so at this point, are you in the hospital because you're determined to be insane or is it still like work houses, poor houses, but they put it under the guise of medical care? Well, my understanding is that they kind of like fed each other. So like you went to the poor house and then your options were you went straight to Bedlam because you were insane. Or you went to the poor house, workhouse, whatever, because you couldn't afford stuff. And then sometimes that fed bedlam because then they determined you were insane somehow. Okay. So it's like a pipeline. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Cool. So due to lack of hygiene, uh, literally no one cleaned. No one cleaned. There was um, one of the things I read was that all of like the sewer was like, traveling underneath like where the legitimate water supply was and sometimes that would just like merge a little this is what happens when you don't have germ theory now to be fair a little bit because I always like to play devil advocate or devil's advocate they did not have proper hygiene at this time period no matter where you were Um, Like they shit in the streets. So I cannot fault them too much for their disposal of sanitation because they didn't freaking know. They just put it wherever. However, you should know not to put your sanitation near your clean water supply, but whatever. It's honestly Um, shocking how many cities built them like that. Like major, like it was like into the, I think like late 1800s, early 1900s that Columbus, Ohio finally separated sanitary sewers from water sewers, like the, the wastewater, Mm -hmm. not like the drinking water, but like that all got dumped like into Mm -hmm. our clean water supply and then redistributed out. But anyways, that's just. Not only did their like sanitation meat and this wasn't like a city specific thing I mean it could have been this is just bedlam in general like their sanitation meeting their clean water supply um not only that but they just had an inadequate water supply period um and then quite a few patients because of things we talked about previously embezzlement and stuff like that were just suffering from starvation like I said, the hospital originally started and was built and blah, blah, blah in London. It did move a few times. Like they would build a new building 
um, a couple of times because they needed it to be enlarged. Because, you know, we're already doing so well with the patients we have. So in 1667, they needed to accommodate 59 patients. So they moved. In 16, no, 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 that's right. 1674, they observed they needed to enlarge the hospital again. So in 1676, they finished that project and they were able to accommodate 120 patients. The final expansion happened in the early 19th century. And they ended up at that time having a capacity for 364 patients. So they went from 59. Well, I don't know how many they had originally. It wasn't very many, but 59 to 120 to 364. That's a pretty large change in capacity. Yeah. Well, (laughs) this is where it starts to get crazy. So obviously, if you had a family member there, you could visit. Um, but Whitley throughout the history of the hospital, starting in 1610, they allowed for public visiting. Emily, what's public visiting? You ask Whitley, let me tell you, this literally means that even if you did not know anyone at the hospital, you could go in and see how those people who were labeled as, quote, insane were living. Like a people zoo. Correct. And I'm glad you brought that up because aside from this being a fundraising function, because of course they charge freaking money for this, it was also thought it would offer moral instruction for visitors. So basically they're like, hey, come see these people, give us some money. And also, so you don't fall down the same path of immorality and vice like they did. And that's how they ended up here. It's like the scared straight program. Yes, but crazy because like, and I'm not like no pun intended, but like who thinks that that's how, like, I don't understand. So the late 18 and early 19th centuries are the most notable when it comes to, um, and is most decisive, honestly, and the emergence of new thoughts and attitudes towards uh, the management and treatment of the insane. So a lot more of how we should be treating people, how it medic, like different um, treatments medically affect them. Um, I mean, let's just focus on like getting people better. Like what can we do to get people better or at least be comfortable and like maintain a sense of like normalcy. So in 1814, because we love the Quakers, like hashtag team Quaker over here. That's similar to uh, how Ben Franklin always makes a cameo. I feel like we're always talking about Quakers. Yes. So Quaker reformer Edward Wakefield visited the hospital and reported on the conditions because a lot of people, I mean, there were a lot of people, not just Quakers, um who realized like this may not be the best way to treat these people so in a particular in a particular account he focused on a man named James Norris who was a patient there he's an American marine I do not know how he ended up at Bedlam in in England but here we are an American Marine who was around 55 years old and had been, had been detained 
since February 1st, 1800. So he'd been in there for 14 years. He was housed in the incurable wing, had been continuously restrained for about a decade in a harness type device, which severely restricted his movement. And Wakefield had this to say, quote, a stout iron ring was riveted around his neck from which a short chain passed to a ring made to slide upwards and downwards on an upright massive iron bar, more than six feet high inserted into the wall. Round his body, a strong iron bar about two inches wide was riveted. On each side of the bar was a circular projection, which being fashioned to and enclosing each of his arms, pinioned them close to his sides. This waist bar was secured by two similar iron bars, which passing over his shoulders were riveted to the waist, both bef uh, before and behind. The iron ring around his neck was connected to the bars on his shoulders by a double link. From each of these bars, another short chain passed to the ring on the upright bar. He had remained thus encaged and chained more than 12 years. End quote. So this person couldn't move anywhere. No. For 12 years. Correct. And he was there at the time that Wakefield went. He had been there for 14 years. So what? that means the first two years, they must have just thought, oh, he's like having some problems. And then he must have after the second year, found his way to the incurable wing and made his way into this device. I mean, what did he do to get that level of punishment? I mean, yeah, that, I, this is something I'd like to do. I want to see if I can find more on him specifically and do maybe with a short TikTok on him or something, but I, I don't get it. 100%. I don't get how you think that could be okay for someone. I would literally rather be executed. Same. Just kill me at this point. Because you know, like now, with the way they described, like he has to be like, so his arms are like basically pinned to his, close to his sides. So like he has to rely on them to eat, to literally do anything. Because of reports like this um, from Wakefield and from others. This helped to renew the campaign for national lunacy reform and helped establish an 1815 House of Commons Select Committee on Madhouses. So basically what this did was it examined conditions at county asylums, private madhouses, charitable asylums, and the lunatic wards of poor law workhouses and how they were handling their patients. Um, from what I could find, I literally don't know what came from that. That's, that's all I could find. So I'm going to assume probably nothing. They probably did it just to shut people up. Um, and I say that because of what we're about to talk about next. <laughs> so <clears throat> basically, from let's see that was 1814 
And then the committee was made in 1815. So about from like 1815 to 1930, I just have like a chunk of notes. I could not find any information. I feel comfortable assuming that these people literally just continue to do the same shit. Like, yeah, I, I mean, really just feel comfortable assuming that. It sounds like this study into the conditions happened. We could say we did it mm-hmm. to help calm people's concerns down. And then nothing was done for that missing time period. I, I agree. That's exactly what that sounds like. So in 1930, the hospital moved yet again to the suburbs of Croydon. In 1997, they celebrated their 750th anniversary. As you could imagine, many people didn't really want to celebrate uh, because, you know, like a lot of inhumane practices were still in place. And like, why would we want to celebrate that? So there was literally a section called fatal restraints. (laughs) And I'm laughing because I'm panicked to tell you about this. Because I, I want to tell you why you know Bedlam as being super controversial. I'm going to introduce you to Olaseni Lewis. He died at age 23 in 2010 after police subjected him to prolonged restraint of a type known to be dangerous. Police, and this was at Bedlam. Police nor medical staff intervened when he became unresponsive. So he became unresponsive. They did nothing and he died at 23. So he was restrained at the hospital, which was a known practice that was dangerous. Correct. And then he went unresponsive and nobody intervened, including medical staff and police force. Correct. Okay. So highly, highly problematic. Correct. So... So during a coroner's inquest, the jury found many failures on part of police and staff, and they were said to say, quote, the excessive force, pain compliance techniques, and multiple mechanical restraints were disproportionate and unreasonable. On the balance of probability, this contributed to the cause of death, and end quote. So the jury also found, quote, The police failed to follow their training, which requires them to place an unresponsive person into the recovery position and, if necessary, administer life support. On the balance of probability, this is also contributed to the cause of death, end quote. The Independent Police um, Complaints Commission, so IPCC, we're not surprised. Nobody is surprised. If you're surprised, message me so then I can unsurprise you. They originally cleared the officers. Of course they did. Right? Nobody's surprised here. But of course, we are not also surprised that because of pressure from the family and from like media and people, you know, that are outraged of the public, this made them start an inquiry. They said, wait, wait, actually you're not you're not cleared. We have to rewind. We have to like look into this now. So they tried, but they didn't because the IPCC was only planning disciplinary action for some of the officers involved, not all of them. So 
the jury had reached the most damning possible conclusion with, quote, <clears throat> this was a most horrific death. 11 police officers were involved in holding down a terrified young man until his complete collapse, legs and hands bound in limb restraints, while mental health staff stood by. Officers knew the dangers of this restraint, but chose to go against clear, unequivocal training. Evidence heard at this inquest begs the question of how racial stereotyping informed Senny's brutal treatment, end quote. 